So, good evening, everyone. It's nice to be with you. It's nice to sit in here. It felt so quiet. I don't know what it's like on the inside, but you look really good on the outside. <laughs> I've come to see that how we look isn't always, you know, indicative of what's going on, but it helps, you know. We'll take it. Um... So tonight I wanted to talk about the heart and compassion and the role of insight, the path of insight with that. And I give a lot of talks on love and compassion. Even when I plan to do something else, when I look in the room of wherever I am, it just starts coming out like that. So I said, okay, I, I think I want to talk about this more tonight in a deeper way. And I was thinking a lot about Jack today. He's been my mentor for 20 years. And I met him on my first retreat 20 years ago. And I, we became friends and... And it was really interesting. I had already been practicing on my own for a few years. And I was studying in the self-realization fellowship tradition. I was a Hindu practitioner. And I was studying on my own, and I was having a really hard time. I would go to the temple here in Richmond, and they never gave you any instruction. And the sittings were three hours. So I would arrive, and they would say, just think of God. And I would say, okay. (laughs) And every hour they would chant for about one minute to mark the hours. And I would just be going crazy, as you could imagine, if we said, okay, everybody, we're going to start our three-hour sitting, you know, and don't tell you anything about awareness, anything other than just God, yeah, you know. And I would go crazy for the first two hours, you know. And finally, out of sheer exhaustion, my mind would fall into a kind of somewhat concentrated state. But after a year and a half of being dedicated, I kept thinking, I don't, I don't know if I'm doing this right. And I heard about this retreat. It was before this hall was finished, actually. And I heard about this retreat. I didn't know who was leading it, but they said, they give you instruction. And I was like, really? On how to meditate? And they're like, yeah, it's pretty good too, you know. (laughs) And it was in Yucca Valley at the desert. And so I, as I was driving to the retreat, I I had this terrible breakup the night before, you know, me and my boyfriend screaming, yelling, it's over. I had no money. I had like $30 and a gas tank and full, and then I don't even know how I fully got to the retreat. Anyway, I got there and I was exhausted. I almost collapsed on the table. Um, but I was so happy when I got into the hall. And then I, I remember as I was walking in, everyone was like, do you know Jack Cornfield? I was like, who? <laughs> I was like, I just need help with my mind. <laughs> and I'm so tired. I'm tired. I don't know who these people are. I don't care. <laughs> You know, it was like 150 beginners. It's like they did 10-day beginning retreat and everyone was wandering around, you know. And so we finally got into the hall and I was sitting there and then 
Jack was giving this talk and he said, Oh, nobly born, remember who you are. And he started to give this talk and I, before I knew it, my whole face was wet with tears. And I was like, oh yeah, I remember. Like I was remembering something I didn't even know I had forgotten, but the suffering, you know, and he was reminding me, it was like, oh no, and that nobly born really got me. And it was like, remember you're the sons and daughters of the awakened ones. And I was like, oh yes. And I don't remember more than that because I was just crying. You know, and I, I thought, this is the right place for me. Like I found what I've been looking for. Just that sentence was enough to remind me. And also open my heart in that, that moment. It was like, because so much of what we're doing is remembering who we are, remembering ourselves, remembering our nobility. It's like we've all forgotten. And somehow these retreats are about remembering. And I remember with you, the teachers, we go through our own retreat with you. You know, we're here, but we're also sitting and we're listening and we're reflecting and we're talking and we're laughing sometimes and we're trying to also make sense of this life and how to be in it with more love and more compassion. And so, in some way, that that started me off in in the right way. I found the right teacher, right? (laughs) Teach this path with heart, because I knew that was all I cared about. I knew that at the end of the road, I knew what Paramahasa Yogananda was talking about. Can you love? You know? And I love that Ram Das is like, serve. You want to learn how to love? Serve. Serve. Right? It's not as complex as we make it. But yet we have work to do. Things are obscuring this. What keeps us from remembering who we are all the time? What keeps us from feeling that? To remembering our nobility and remembering that we're the sons and daughters of the awakened ones. What is in the way of that? So that's kind of what I want to talk about some tonight. And also weave in some of my own stories. And this, um, this topic of love and compassion in the heart, I have a, a book coming out in just a couple of weeks called A Fierce Heart, Finding Strength, Courage, and Wisdom in Any Moment. And of course, Jack wrote the foreword. And, and I... I feel that it's my own reflections on my own path over the last 20 years on this path with the heart. How do I live into it in any moment, in any situation? It feels important. The book feels more important than ever now, actually. And it was really hard for me to write it. I'm glad it's done. You know, God, I've, I don't know how people do it more than once. I, you know, it's like, God... This was challenging because every time I thought I would get to a certain point of understanding, I would say, this isn't it. This is not deep enough, not real enough, not truthful enough, right? I would go on another retreat or I would reflect more 
or I would pause, or I would look deeper. And that felt important, and there was a lot I needed to learn in the process. And it's still, I'm a kindergartner. I feel like a baby, preschool, <laughs> with understanding the power of love and compassion. And I don't mean the kind of love that we know. I'm talking about the unconditional, vast love of a great Buddha or a great Bodhisattva. Right? What, what kind of heart is that? Right? And I, I feel like I'm just such a beginner. So one, one organization that I've I studied a lot over the last couple of years is an organization that's here in the Bay Area called HeartMath Institute. Have any of you heard of it? HeartMath. So um, they're pretty incredible. What their mission is, I'll read a little bit of their mission statement, is to help people bring their physical, mental, and emotional systems into balanced alignment with their heart's intuitive guidance. And what it is, is it's made up of a bunch of um, scientists. Well, I'll read you some here. So it started off being a group of psychophysiologists and then cardiologists. They joined with a group of neurophysiologists and neuroautonomists to explore these areas. And they started a new discipline at this organization. They wanted to study the heart and the power of the heart. They studied this uh, new discipline that they call neurocardiology. <laughs> so basically, it's all this science about the heart, actually. And it's really, really amazing because one of their insights and why I brought this up, and they have so much incredible research, one of their recent... Uh, discoveries is that the brain, well, the heart has its own brain. And if you ask Tibetan Buddhists, they already know this. They say that the mind is here. They point to the heart. Right? There is a funny, uh, I don't know where I heard that story about Richie Davis and all these, uh, the beginning of the mind-life conversations where all the physicists and neuroscientists go to Dharamsala and talk to the Dalai Lama. And they said that they made this big, they wanted to test some of the monks and they made one of those big helmets, you know. And then they brought it out to show the monks that they were going to have them all hooked up to and they all started hysterically laughing. And they, they thought, oh my God, why would they laugh? We've invested so much in this, you know. And they all said, no, no, the mind is here. <laughs> they pointed at the heart. And they're like, you have to start all over again. Right? And they're like, the heart, what do you mean? Like, just that f- reference point, right? Where is, wow, that's a shift, isn't it? Like, the mind here? <laughs> so, as we know, science is slow to catch up. But science is good because it proves things. You know, people, when we talk about the power of the heart and the power of love, they might think, oh, that's just hippie talk, wishful thinking. No, it's actually science in this organization. Heart math is putting it together, right? Putting together incredible experiments. And so they, said, they talked about how the heart communicates with the brain in four ways. So we've talked about this some, the neurological communication through the nervous system, the bio 
chemical communication, which is the hormones, biophysical communication, pulse waves, and the energetic communication through the electromagnetic fields. And so what they thought, they used to think the brain controlled the heart, and now they're finding it's the opposite. Actually, everything is originating from the heart. Isn't it incredible? And they had done all this uh, work now where they recognize that the heart, before a natural disaster, actually picks it up way ahead, before storms, before deaths, before any... Actually, the heart is in a resonance with the whole planet. And what they're discovering is that, um, that the brain, they call it now the heart brain, right, is an intricate network and that it is constantly giving us information through this other brain, but we're not listening. And the, 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 basically the goal of this organization is to help people start to listen to it. Right? It's, a, it's a different kind of information. It's intuitive. It's body-based. Some might say that it's even feminine. They might describe it more as feminine. And um, so I, I find that it's uh, exciting what they're doing and innovative and incredible. So you can go and research later all their studies that they have going on. They have another big one going on with trees where they discover that trees have hearts <laughs> and all the hearts in the forest are talking to each other, right? So there's this vast interconnectedness that comes actually through the heart, not so much the mind, but through this other way of listening and being, and I feel like that's what we're doing here is trying to figure out a new way to listen and to be. You know, when we come on these retreats, my first retreat that I came on, it was something in my life wasn't working. Do you feel that way? Like some way I'm living this life, it's just not, it doesn't feel that um, it's the path of happiness So we come to spiritual life often in a crisis or looking or we're dissatisfied, right? Something isn't quite working and we want to know more. Is this it? Often I used to work with young people at young adult retreat here for many years. So it would be, I don't know, 122-year-olds, you know? (laughs) And they'd be like, is this it? You know, what we've been sort of, what life, is this, is this all we're supposed to do is work and achieve? And, and they weren't sure if they were, if that was enough. I think this is a little sad if this is all there is. There's got to be more. And I had that same thought as well when I was very young. I first tried to meditate actually when I was 11 years old. Um, I found a book by Wayne Dyer. You know that teacher, Wayne Dyer? <laughs> he was a good guy. He died not too long ago, leukemia. But I appreciated his early pioneering um, and the kind of spiritual movement. But my mother um, had left a book on the table. Uh, she went to work, and then I stayed home from school one day. And I saw the book, and I spent all day trying to meditate how he was laying it out in the book. But again, it was, it was really hard. But I remember trying, going, something's wrong with my mind. I just know it. 
And I was depressed, actually, at 11 years old. My mother was clinically depressed. My sister was depressed. We'd been through so much. Um, and I, I could understand that like, something's going on with my thinking. But without any support and any wisdom around me, I couldn't really go into that or no one around me could help me make sense of that or teach me any dharma. Right? There was no dharma. I used to ask my mother questions all the time and she would get so tired of it and she would actually turn to me and she would say, honey, life's a bitch, then you die. That really is it. Right? <laughs> I'm sorry. Can you imagine? And I... And I, was, I, I remember my mind going, no, she just doesn't know, you know, the answers. <laughs> and I loved her, but I had already outgrown, you know, a certain kind of, and I started reading psychology, like, no, they can't just be that cruel. Because in my heart, I knew there was compassion here. I knew there was something, that's not the whole of the story. That is a story, yes. That is the one that people live out, yes. But that doesn't have to be my story. That's not the entirety of it. So what are we doing here on these retreats? What are we really doing? I'm sure you've had moments to ask yourself that here. (laughs) What are we doing, right? (laughs) You may be looking out at everyone walking and you go, what? Oh my God. Somebody was telling me today, like, zombies everywhere. I cannot, I cannot deal with this, right? And there is something funny. You know, Spirit Rock is a hospital, if you haven't noticed. It's a cosmic hospital. It's kind of like a spaceship in here a little bit, right? And we come and we get well and we eat good food and we look at the turkeys and we walk slowly and we regain ourselves. You know, it's like we come back to remembering. That's the key. We're so forgetful, and the world is so forgetful, and everything is going so fast. This slowing down, as weird as it seems, the slow walking. I remember one of my teachers, I think it was Joseph, he told me his teacher, Mahasi Sayadaw, said, walk around like you're sick. Act like a sick person. Now that wouldn't be my way, but just that kind of slow. You know how it is when you're sick. Everything is kind of, <laughs> you literally are in slow motion. And I would think, why would I do that? I don't, he would say, because you'll, you'll pay attention. You know, you'll train. So you don't have to do that, but there, there, was, a, there was a point to that kind of practice slowing way down so that we can see more clearly what is happening in our heart, in our mind. But what we're doing here is really the work of purification. This is actually what this path is called, the path of purification. And it's hard because you're cleaning your mind. Does anyone remember what it was like to clean out their garage lately? Right? Days and days of work. And often it gets way messier before it gets better. You know, you start pulling out junk and it goes, oh my God, this is a mess in here, right? And so we can get overwhelmed. Some people give up at that point, right? It's like, I'll finish this next year. This is the best I can do. (laughs) I'll finish in two years. Yeah, it's too much. But they got a little bit done. 
You know, they, they got a few boxes unpacked there. But that's, that's really what we're doing, is we're cleaning our mind, right? Cleaning it of what? What is it that is obscuring our remembering? This is what we're cleaning off, the obscurations, the veils. And these veils are thick, and they're, they're conditioned. We've, we've, we've made them very strong unconsciously. So in some way, what we're cleaning is what the, the Buddha called the three poisons. And the three poisons are greed, hatred, and delusion. Right? And so the greed is the, the endless wanting mind. It's not even wanting, it's called the tanha is the word. I like that word, tanha. It kind of gives a little intensity, which means thirsting. It's not just regular craving, it's thirsting. <laughs> thirsting after experience, right? Wanting, wanting more, wanting to become wanting admiration, wanting, 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 wanting to be, wanting everything. Has anyone noticed that mind state a little bit? Wanting mind. Even if you just want a latte, right? <laughs> All right, I want that cushion instead of that one, right? Or just the endless, it's pretty much an onslaught. Would you notice most of the day our suffering comes from, it's like I, and the word want is next, right? I want, I want, I want, I want. And this wanting has huge repercussions in our culture, right? So say maybe some people have like a lot of money, millions and millions, and they want more. <laughs> because what I've noticed about wanting mine is the illusion is if I just satiate it, <laughs> it'll stop. But that's actually not the end. It's kind of like there's this joke I have with the teacher's room. There's all these cookies in there. Sorry to say, there's all these Newman's cookies and Fig Newtons. And I was like, no, no, if I eat one, I'll want another one, right? And I try to trick myself, like, oh, no, no, I could have one Fig Newton, right? How many times we do that? Just one chip, just, just one. <laughs> I mean, there's whole campaigns around, you can't just have one, right? We want more. So this kind of, the greed mind is really just about it's the endless wanting, craving. It's so painful, actually. And we try to satiate it, because actually what we want is the end of wanting. Because when we're wanting something in any moment, we're not happy. We're saying this moment isn't enough. This, is, this isn't good enough, right? We might be by a, sun, a beautiful sunset. If only I had a Mai Tai, then, you know. Like, it's never enough, the moment. It's like, if only I had that, you know, fill in the blank. So it's very hard for us to let go of that. We're very conditioned. We grow up like that. We encourage our children. We raise them kind of like that. Want more. Want. Right? What do you want for Christmas? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want to be? What do you want? What do you want? You know, we kind of, I think it's unconscious, but we, we're, we're swimming in that. So this greed, we're seeing it more on a planetary level, but we can see it in ourselves too, on the micro level. You know, we are just a microcosm of the world. What's happening internally is happening externally, 
right? This wanting, wanting whole areas of the world, wanting water, wanting other people's land. So this, this greed um, is suffering. The Buddha said that that is the cause, the root of suffering is craving, is that grasping. So our goal is to start learning how to let go. This is our practice. If you came here to collect things, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> and that's an, oftentimes people do. We come here, we want, you know, give me, give me something. People sit in the audience, give me something right now. And give me, you know, we have a grasping quality with our spiritual practice. Instead of realizing that our whole practice is really about letting go. It's like, how much can I let go? How much can I just accept the moment? Be here. So we're, we're learning how to practice non-greed. Every time we come back to the breath and the body, every time we just breathe and we open to what is and we let go of the grasping mind, we're, we're deconditioning that habit. These three aspects are interesting. The Buddha called them poisons. That's an intense word, like a poison in the well. You know, it's like a poison in the mind, the consciousness. You know, it's like we're flowing along and then, wow, here's this poison that's obscuring things. It's an intense word, but I think if we look around, we can see it. Um, and also learn to work with it in a different way. So the other poison that he talked about was hatred and then delusion. And so the hatred we can also see here clearly. Even in spiritual places, we can get annoyed at people. We can start cultivating it. And I think there's, I want to say there's a big difference between anger and hatred in my experience. Anger can arise and it's quite, we feel it, we might open to it. But a hatred is what we hold on and we feed it. You see the difference there? Hatred is a feeding of a certain mind, right? And it's very toxic to our body, physically, emotionally, is very painful. Um, and we can work with that. And then the third one is delusion. Delusion is just not seeing the nature of things, right? Not seeing things clearly. And so I'll talk about these a little bit more, but that's what we are purifying. And it's really hard because the work of purification means that we have to go right down and look at these roots for ourselves, like we go to the underworld of the mind on retreats. The places we never want to go, it's like, we have to go. It's like, no, no, not, not this door. No, 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 I don't want to think about that. Have you noticed yourself bargaining? No, no, I, I don't, not that one, not, not that issue, right? And then here it is. And it all, it all comes up. So it's important that we learn how to open to these these aspects with a lot of love and compassion when they're arising. I don't know how people do it any other way. You know, this retreat, one of the themes is um, this softening. We keep talking about this underdoing, softening, opening. And people go, God, this is so hard to relax. A couple of people said that in interviews. Why is this so hard? <laughs> As anyone having a hard time underdoing, right? The tendency to strive, to push is so ingrained in us. And I think in some way, um, 
the Buddha had his own battle with this as well, this pushing and then this surrendering. And we can really look at it as we look at it more of this quality of the yin um, that, you know, we're sort of out of balance, right? So we have certain aspects of ourselves are overemphasized in a way that's not balanced. And I'd like to talk about the story of Sujata. I'm not sure if it fits in all the way here, but I have sort of an obsession with this character in the life of the Buddha named Sujata. And I, I've had many visions of this woman, and I've, I've been studying her, and I feel like I need to bring her out. Um, and Sujata, in the story of the Buddha's life, Sujata saved his life, actually. So the Buddha was practicing, you know, as you know, he leaves the palace and he renounces his life as the prince and he becomes the seeker. He becomes the spiritual practitioner. And he goes to all the teachers in the forest. He lives in the forest for many years and he learns from them and he um, accelerates. He goes beyond what they know. So after he's kind of gone through all the teachers and exhausted everyone's teachings, He's just, he decided, well, they don't really have the final answer to what is suffering and how to be free. So he decides to go on his own, and he does these very, very intense practices. So there is a statue. It's beyond where you guys can see it because it's on the other side by the staff building. It's a huge statue. It's almost bigger than the Buddha when you go down by the kitchen, you know, by the dining tables, everyone sits out there. It's a statue of the Buddha starving to death. And you can see his ribs and his back is hunched over, right? And this represents his years where he pushed and pushed and pushed and so um, intensely. They say he would only eat one grain of rice a day, right? Wouldn't bathe, was trying to basically go out of his body, break his body in some way, right? Somehow thinking, I I don't need this body, I can go out, right? I get out, get free. So there's many different versions of the story with the version I like. um, They said that he stood up to go to the bathroom and then fell in the mud face down and realized, I don't even have the energy to practice. What am I doing? Like, why am I practicing like this? And had this huge insight uh, about the middle way, about, wow, this, uh, this isn't the way. I've wasted years. And they say at that moment, now this is where different, uh, the Mahayana and the Theravada and the Vajrayana, these different traditions, they tell different stories about Sujata. So the version I like is Thich Nhat Hanh's version, where he talks about Sujata, this beautiful sort of um, village sort of uh, woman, you know, an, a, a woman of mature age, older woman, who um, spends all morning making this beautiful rice porridge that she's going to bring as a as, leave as an offering. And, you know, you see around the world people make offerings to shrines and they leave beautiful objects and they send their blessings. So here comes Sujata walking through the forest with this amazing steaming bowl of rice pudding and she's made all morning and she sees this being half dead, nearly dead. In the legend they say that all the gods were going, oh no, he's killing himself, right? And you know they couldn't get through to him but here's Sujata walking and sees this being, heart opens, 
she offers the food and he receives the food. Now, one way what we can look at in that moment, if we look at it symbolically, is that that's the entering in of the softness, right? It's like, it's too harsh. It's out of balance. You're killing yourself, right? And we can look at this on a planetary level. It's too harsh. We're out of balance, right? Softness, right? Eat food. So then they said that he started eating and he took a bath and he... And in some of the different stories in the Mahayana tradition, they say that she stayed and nursed him back to health. Other in the Theravada, they say that they met at a well and she offered the food. She was wearing a blue sari. Other version, they say that she was a small child, right? Another version, they became lovers, right? And, and she healed him in that way. So again, it's like this archetype of the mother or nurturing or softness and then he becomes restored and then he practices in a completely different way open, receptive, kind, just meeting the moment, no struggles, just remembering the bliss of being in his father's garden. So I feel that for me that's a big story. And Sujata is also a story, a character who I, I want to know more about her life. I want to bring her spirit out. When I was in India, I was like, we have to go to Sujata's village. And it was this tiny little village, you know, and this orphanage on there and a whole bunch of kids begging. And I gave them all this money and sat at the shrine for a little bit and um, made my offering, thank you for saving the Buddha, (laughs) right? The untold heroine, a woman. (laughs) And then we have up here on the altar is Prajnaparamita, now, I like Prajnaparamita because the mudra is kind of holding the light in the dark, right? She holds all of the suffering and the, uh, everything, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. So often can be like this, depicted like this. So that's the mudra. And Prajnaparamita, Prajna meaning wisdom, Paramita meaning perfection, Right, so the perfection of wisdom, the great Mahayana text of Prajnaparamita, the wisdom gone beyond. They call it the wisdom that gives birth to the Buddhas. So this is consciousness now, the, the wisdom that gives birth to um, Buddha nature. Right, so they say it's the wisdom gone beyond even that wisdom, beyond even that wisdom. Right, it's the wisdom that can hold everything. So often I, lately I've been doing Prajnaparamita practice to ask Prajnaparamita to help me hold everything that's happening on the planet with love. Because sometimes if it's just me, I can't hold it. I collapse in it, you know, with everything going on. So I think, what can hold this? Ah, the wisdom of Prajna. And I just breathe into expanding my heart. Right, so Prajnaparamita is also um, a big part of what we're doing, holding energy, opening through the heart. I don't know how else we can do it without the heart, without compassion. As I grow older, I just bow deeper and deeper to it, 
because it can hold all the suffering internally, externally. I cannot alleviate all the suffering, but I can be with it. And that's all compassion asks us to do is just to bear, bear witness to our own and also what's happening in the world. There was this story um, uh, many years ago. I went on a long retreat. Uh, I was doing like, I think about an eight-month retreat. And I was at a place on the East Coast called the Forest Refuge, a little meditation center. And I had done a lot of intense practice. This was when I was in my intensity stage. <laughs> I was pushing really hard. And I had just sat through three Burmese sidaos the infamous Upandita, who's quite fierce, and then Ulakana, and then another Sayadaw. So I went through all this really, you know, practice, like your hair's on fire, and, you know, you know, stay up. We only had, I had one meal a day at 11 o'clock, and the rest of the time I was supposed to be mindful every second. And we had interviews every day. That's different, right? Interviews daily. You had, and you, you had to report on a piece of paper what your direct experience of the breath was. So he wouldn't look at me in the interviews. He would just say, okay, let me hear it. right? And he could tell if you were mindful or not. And everyone said he had psychic powers. So they're like, never sleep because he will know if you overslept. So there was a certain kind of like, he could read our minds, you know. I think I was on the retreat with Joseph. Gina might have been there too. Yeah, Gina and Pascal, a whole group of teachers were sitting this retreat. And um, anyway, and I did quite well on the retreat because one of the funny things is that um, love and compassion, especially happiness, is the cause of concentration. So oftentimes I would fall into kind of happy states of mind, so my mind got concentrated, and he liked that. (laughs) <laughs> he didn't like unmindful. If somebody was reporting something that sounded slightly, he would just ring the bell, get out, right? Go be mindful. <laughs> we would all be in a line together and we could hear him talking to the person and we kind of walk in like, oh my gosh, <laughs> right? And we'd be shaking, kind of reading our note, you know? I hope this sounds good. <laughs> um, how, look how nice we are here, huh? <laughs> we realized that that kind of striving wasn't helpful for people on the retreat. A lot of people would break down, have anxiety. It just, it's, it's only a certain type of person can kind of uh, manage under that kind of stress. But for some reason, I, I did well on it. But after four months of it, I, I, had, I, I hit a wall. And I kept thinking, what am I doing here? Who does this? Who, who acts like this, you know? <laughs> Maybe my mom is right. Maybe I have problems. I need to get out of these kind of places and, you know, get married or something. I don't, I don't know. What am, it's too intense. And I was really having a meltdown, a serious crisis. And so I was at this um, first refuge. So I remember I went into the library. And in the library, it was only these huge Dharma books, like the Vasudhi Maga, you know, Pali Canon, Middle. These are like Bibles, like reading Bibles, you know, like just all the sutras. And I was like, oh, I've already looked at all this, you know. You know how you get bored here and you want to read? And you, you notice the note board is really appealing. You might find yourself 
Just staring at it. Oh, wait, a new note we'd all... At IMS, they used to call it the Vipassana TV. And Joseph was always like, let's throw it out. Because people, we would all stand there for a long period. Just be like, right, don't go on that road. Yes, okay, the light's off. Uh, okay, nothing new. <laughs> but that's how there was nothing to do, right? Just go back to the meditation, sit, walk. That was the only excitement was the noteboard and new notes going on it. And so, um, so there was nothing to read in there. But then suddenly between these two giant Buddhist, you know, translations of uh, <laughs> the liberation teachings, there was somebody had stuck this little book in the middle and I just pulled it immediately. And I was like, what is this? And it was the oddest looking book. And on it was a picture of a camel and it said, the camel knows the way. And I was like, the camel knows the way. And it was obviously self-published. And I had known, and I had scanned that place so many times in boredom, right, looking for anything that I hadn't read. I had never seen this, so somebody had put it there. So I immediately ran up to my room and started reading it. And it ended up being a very magical book. It was a book about a woman who was a Buddhist practitioner. She was from England. She was an older woman who was also a philanthropist. And the whole book opened up to this magical story about her very close friendship with Mother Teresa. And she was not only Catholic, but she was also Buddhist. And so she would go to work with Mother Teresa in Calcutta, and they would spend evening after evening having tea and sharing and she would work in the orphanages or with the humanitarian projects with the Sisters of Mercy and then she would try so hard to open her heart and then she would just get overwhelmed with all of it and then run off and do Vipassana retreats and go see gurus and teachers and sit these 10-day courses. So she had these two beautiful traditions but the whole book was a struggle of her heart Like, if only I could have compassion. I have none, right? She would always feel that she had none. So during this one time, the the main story I want to share with you was in one of the chapters where she gets so burned out working at one of the projects and decides to go on a pilgrimage across the desert, kind of like the Desert Fathers, right? Or the sort of reenacting Mary and Joseph. And she wants to do this pilgrimage. So she sets about to do it on these camels. And she has these guides who are helping her. But I, I, and they're, they're like near Damascus or something. They're way out in this very remote place. So she, it's a three-week pilgrimage and she would you know, the two guides were a father and a son, but she didn't speak the language that they spoke, and they knew very little English. So they would ride on these camels in the day, they would have a fire, she would just ride and read, and they would talk, and then then they would go to sleep, and then right as the sun was coming, they would get up and ride across the desert. And that's how they passed their days, going from place to place. It was all mapped out. Then they arise on this one morning, and... Um, the father and son load her up. And this is, again, a woman who's a little bit older. I think she was in her 60s at the time, late 60s. And they load her on the camel. Then they smack the butt of the camel, and they say something, and they proceed to go the other direction. <laughs> and so the camel starts walking, 
And she's like, what? Where are you going? Wait, we are my guides. Where are you going? And they go, they knew this one line. They get the camel knows the way. <laughs> and so, and she goes, wait, no. And they just left. And, and she's on the camel and the camel's walking. So you could imagine the next 15 hours of every, I mean, she went through screaming rage. I'm going to die out here. Oh my God. There can, some people, bandits are coming, and she doesn't see anybody. They're just going through the desert, and she's reliving, this is the end of my life, and you know I'm going to run out of water, and how could I die like this? And then, then she starts remembering Mother Teresa. Then she starts remembering all the Buddhist dharma that she ever heard. Then she starts remembering how amazing her life has been. And she starts reflecting, well, if I'm going to die, I'm not going to die a screaming mess on this camel. I'm going to remember, you know, my lifetime of teachings. And she starts thinking about all the people she helped save and all the children she held and all the beautiful work. She was this beautiful woman who donated tons to Mother Teresa's project, saved thousands of lives and how she had held people in their last moment. All these memories start coming, and she started weeping. And then, you know, the sun is slowly moving. And while she's going through all this, the camel has never stopped walking. You know, she's lived this epic hour after hour, and camel never stopped. It was slowly plodding along. So she goes, okay, you know, the sun is definitely setting now. I'll probably just wander out here till I die, and I'm fine. I've, I'm totally at peace with God, everybody, you know, I'm fine. And sure enough, on the horizon, she sees a twinkling of light, and they get closer, and sure enough, it's the exact moment in the next stop, the camel knew the way. And so, in some way, I think what that story represents is the heart knows the way. And she learned such a lesson from that. It was like a test of her faith, you know? Like, this is my last moment. This is, she was proud of herself, how she responded, what she learned in that day with that camel, with that moment. And so I think it's, it's important to remember that the heart has its own power. There's a power in, uh, in compassion, There's a power in love and kindness. And it's so easy to forget that right now because when I look around, I go, oh, it's the age of the villain, right? Everyone likes the villain right now, okay. (laughs) But villains have short lives. But love and compassion are eternal. These are like building blocks of the universe. This is like the heartbeat of all comes from this this beauty this love. And so I love that story about her because it was what I needed on that moment to remember my heart. I came back to doing meta practice intensively on that retreat. I was like, yes, my heart, this is what has been missing. You know, and I think it's important for all of us while we're on this retreat. You know, we do life reviews here. Have any of you noticed that? You review your life and your and what you value. And what is your motivation? Why do you do what you do? You know, how do you want to live? 
What do we want to leave for our grandchildren, our great, great, great grandchildren? Right? What are we passing on? And what do we, how do we love each other? That really is an important question. How do we love one another? The Dalai Lama writes, love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. Right? So these aren't luxuries, these are necessities that we each cultivate within ourselves, that we learn to cultivate them. And I think that's what's so beautiful about Buddhist practices is that we have these tools to cultivate ourselves by you just sitting here and remembering more natural kindness comes. It may not feel like it moment to moment because it's you're cleaning the house. And sometimes it gets all messy before it gets better. You know, we just pull everything apart and it can feel like, oh, this isn't working. I don't believe this is helping. What am I doing? But we wait until the end Right? We, we suspend judgment and just practice. And the heart, one of the things about the whole heart math organization is their belief in the resonance and what they call resonance, but they're referring to the interconnectedness. So knowing that what you're doing here is not just for yourself alone, it's for the benefit of all beings. Less greed, hatred, and delusion here is less greed, hatred, and delusion in the world. And that's, that's a powerful thing. For me, I can forgive people very easily now. Because when I look at them, what I'm forgiving is greed, hatred, and delusion. I'm forgiving a deluded mind. Now some people want to attack me or kill me or people who look like me. You know, I have four little brothers. They're not so little anymore. They're 21 through 29. Um, But they have saggy pants. And they they look like (laughs) there's a lot of tattoos, right? But they're so sweet. But I, I was thinking about them the other day. And I thought, yeah, people want to kill them. And I thought, oh, but they... They don't know them, you know? And so it's the hatred and delusion that I forgive. I separate that. It's the confused mind. Anyone that would kill another being is in the height of confusion because that is not the path to happiness, right? Altruism, what's funny is that even though I call this the age of villains, altruism is a path to happiness, right? Science is even proving this. And so if we can look at what we're doing here as very important work, you know, very important for ourselves, very important as examples for others, and to learn more about the heart. The heart, what I've discovered in writing my book is that the heart wants to be free. It wants to be boundless. It longs to be free. Its capacity is enormous. Sometimes when I'm doing metta practice on retreat, I can tap into that. And it's so vast and so big, it scares me. I get scared back into my little small self. Because the qualities of loving kindness, compassion, 
equanimity and joy, the four Brahma Viharas, are uh, in the Visuddhi Magga called boundless, immeasurable, vast. So when you're sitting with them, all sense of self goes away. And it's just these qualities take over, right? And they are boundless. And they're powerful. So I think I'll end this talk with um, a little bit of a word from Black Elk. Right? It's seeing the interconnectedness. And I spend time in the jungles with... um, I spent a lot of time with Shipibo people in South America. And they always, uh, they make these beautiful tapestries. Everything's all interwoven. And that's how they see realities. One big energetic, you know, one grid. And it's incredible. So also Native Americans all see that too. So Black Elk wrote in his book, Black Elk Speaks. And he was on the mountain. He said, and while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw. For I was seen in a sacred manner, the shape, shapes of all things in the spirit, and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. So we'll just sit together for a moment here. In the other Lakota prophecy, I see a time of seven generations when all colors of mankind will gather under the sacred tree of life, and the whole world will become one sacred circle again. We are now in the seventh generation. Om Mani Padme Hum. So thank you all for your attention, Um, and we have 
about 30 minutes for walking. You can walk under the stars. It's a nice night to be outside. You bundle up and then we'll come back for the last sitting. Um.